Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Hey, if I sound a little bit amped right now, it's because I just took a break and during that break spent about, I don't know, 15 minutes listening to two Rage Against the Machine songs at 110 decibels. That's DBA weighted and on this stereo system I, I've been building, and it was fucking awesome. Whew, I'm fired up. Anyway, uh, I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with today's guest, Alex Vita. This is one of those uh, moving the needle episodes. Alex talks about moving the needle for his clients, which are photographers. He is a uh, web designer and developer and educator who's vertically positioned in serving photographers. It, it was a great interview. I just enjoyed the heck out of it. We covered a lot of ground, and at the end, Alex asked me a few questions about uh, specialization and uh, value pricing, which I felt barely qualified to answer uh, for real you know, deep wisdom about value pricing. You guys should check out Jonathan Stark and Blair Enns. But we tackled it anyway, and it was a great conversation about how Alex came to the specialization and what it's done for his business to develop expertise in this specialized area. Hope you enjoy it. Alex Vita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Philip. So, Alex, who are you and what do you do? Well, first of all, let me just say I'm I'm a self-taught lone wolf and I'm an introvert, uh -huh. so hope parts of your audience can relate to that. I think that's like <laughs> maybe 90% of my audience. <laughs> Good. <laughs> In terms of work, I help photographers grow their business uh, through a good web presence. That's it in a nutshell. And I have only working with photographers. I help them by either building websites for them. That's the services part of my business. I have, I've worked on it for 11 years now. It's been a long time. Oh, wow. And um, the second part is I kind of teach them how to grow their online business themselves. And I do that through educational content through articles, my newsletter, um, resources and guides on my site. Then I have smaller services uh, like website teardowns or SEO audits. So basically productized services uh, where I just show them what they can improve themselves. Or finally, I have consulting and strategy calls. Um, that's, that's basically it. Oh, that's that's isn't it so wonderful to be able in one sentence to say you know who you work with and what you do for them well it takes a while to polish it that way to to yes. learn what you're doing yourself so <laughs> that's true I, I think nobody would disagree with that so how did this uh, specialization come about where you're now focused on photographers was that from the very beginning or um, when did that happen well, it's kind of the classic uh, scratching your own edge scenario, mm -hmm. I think, um, as many people do that. I started with a nine-to-five corporate job, um, but I wasn't happy in it. I didn't fit in very well with that schedule because all of my spare time I was exploring the passion I had, which was photography. Mm -hmm. I wanted to become a photographer myself, so that meant... All evenings and nights I would spend researching photography gear and setting up a photo studio and all of that. So okay. at one point I made the leap. I tried to become a freelance photographer. So that's which comes into play a lot now because mm -hmm. I can understand the struggles that photographers go through. Uh, so I had a photo studio. I shot a couple of weddings, sold some stock photography, all of that. And right. then... I built my own website because, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm a program, pro programmer at, at base. I mm -hmm. studied, I have a degree in computer science, so mm -hmm. I knew how to do that. And I built it for myself. It got noticed by another photographer, asked me to build one for him. That got noticed by a bigger company. They named me one of their certified consultants. So I kind of started tweaking websites for other photographers. That's how it, yeah, that's how it went, basically. 
um, yeah, looking back, some of it might be accidental. So it's luck or something like that. I like that. But I guess, uh, you know, letting go of that job security and making that leap into the unknown freelancing world, um, that's kind of a calculated risk I needed to take. Yes. Yeah. So the the whole career, I think you said 11 years, is that right? Yes, um, 11 years for photography websites alone, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. So when your services move the needle for a client, when they you know create the kind of result that they are meant to, uh, what does it look like for the client? Like what kind of results are they seeing by working with, with you or you know working with the kind of expertise that you have? Hmm, well, that's a good question. I, I would break it down into two separate things. One would be results, so ROI for their business. That's the main goal, of course. Mm-hmm. I've had some photographers land their first sales after I build their portfolios or um, a stock photography site had 30% increases in their sales or I've, I've had in this past year two portrait photographers who just landed, landed their big, a big commercial client uh, after we built the website. Uh-huh. But to to be honest, really straightforward about it, these are results that I I got from them because I followed up with them after a while, or they came back to me uh, when they were, I guess, thrilled with the results they had. So by definition, they are cherry-picked results. Uh-huh. Uh, you know that about case studies as well. And when I when you put case studies on your website, you only cherry pick the, the best results. So the reason I'm saying it is to be open about it. It's hard to measure ROI for me in this, in the niche I'm in, mm-hmm. um, because sometimes um, many of the clients I work with are beginners. They're just start, starting their uh, photography business for the first time. It's their first website. So they're starting from zero if they get, if I work with them and then they get 10 sales, for example, they sell 10 prints or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the ROI for that? It's 10 divided by zero, right? It's infinity. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to measure. And, or, or a different scenario is I have photographers who already have a business. They already have a website and I maybe just come in to improve that. But even then, the ROI is hard to measure because a lot of much of the result depends on them doing marketing work afterwards or um, outreach or promotion and all of that. So it's still not a lot, not all of it is in my control. So over time, seeing that kind of disconnect, I had to focus on what I called the second category of results, which are more intangible stuff, uh, the personal benefits for, mm-hmm. for photographers. And um, that would be, I guess, the speed that I work in. Many, many clients have been impressed with how fast I work. I'm just kind of the inbox zero kind of guy and I'm a power user. I have shortcuts and snippets for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, they had nightmare experience with other web designers in the past for some of them the bar is very low in terms of the relationship with the web designer so i when i keep my promises or or surpass them they're just thrilled about it they're it's it's the intangible stuff or or communication or when i i call it hand holding because some of my clients are not tech savvy they just like to go out there and shoot photos so they need training sometimes and they appreciate it when i when i stick around and explain everything with patience that's that's personal roi it's it's unmeasurable right yeah it sort of falls under the umbrella of emotional benefits like how they feel about you does it do you ever see the the work you do change how they feel about their own business in terms of things like confidence or it's just a sense of pride in what you have built for them uh yeah when they're happy with the end result they just 
they're happy in general. They they share it with everybody, but it's um, a, a lot of mindset shifts need to happen for them. And um, the biggest one I think is they come to me uh, with the idea that it's a hobby, that it's a passion project for them. And I like to teach them that it's, no, it's a business. They need to treat it as a business. It's no longer a hobby about just uh, lighting and composition. It's mm-hmm. about wearing all the other hats, you know, marketing and invoicing and communication and sales and all of that. So it's 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 a shift for them sometimes. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's important. How has specialization contributed to you developing expertise? Yeah, one of the things you mentioned is shortcuts and snippets, and I'm curious if that's um, like is that specific to photography websites, or would that be useful anywhere? Um, well, it was useful all those shortcuts um, and templates, and just being a power user was helpful initially, I'd say, um, because. That's when I was just a beginner web designer. I the goal was to meet technical spec basically. Yes. That's either the request I got from the client; they wanted me to build something specific, and I just obeyed orders. Right. Initially, or it's just industry standards, right? So the website should be mobile friendly, basic right. SEO and performance, and all of that. Right. But Beyond that basic level, uh, by working only with photographers over time, I obviously became more and more focused on the intangible stuff, uh, things that are not technical in nature, that can't, can't be reproduced by a different developer. Because when you're in a narrow field like that, you start understanding the nuances, basically. And I just feel... Uh, right now that I think about it, everything in life has nuances. If you study, if you look around your room right now, any object in that room uh, has someone in that industry knowing all the nuances. It, it applies to everything in life. If you study long enough, uh, it applies to sports, right? So uh, most people think curling is boring, right? But right. <laughs> <laughs> study long enough you learn so many details you you get uh, yeah you, you you get the idea so it's it's kind of the same with business when you understand the target audience you start seeing a lot of those nuances it's uh, it's just a natural process right so let me if i may put you on the spot and ask you about just to give a few examples of the kind of nuances that you've picked up that Perhaps a uh, you know a generalist web designer or developer might not know about the photography vertical. Well, uh, this there's a huge list. I, I could go on and on. So um, I'm, I'm hoping you will. <laughs> okay, so let's off the top of my head. So website performance, everybody knows about that, but for photography websites, it has a lot of nuances because of the image heavy nature of websites in in this field. So that leads to things like image compression and dimensions, uh, image theft and watermarking. Photographers are concerned with that. You have IPTC metadata, so all the information in, inside the image files, how they get uploaded and they get shown on the website for search functionality, searching by keywords, by model releases and so forth. Uh, you can optimize a website for Google image search uh, specifically or when you have an e-commerce photography website that tries to sell um, prints or image licenses. Um, if you sell rights managed licenses, you, you can have a calculator for that. So it automatically determines the price of, of fair usage for that image. Or uh, there's a lot of detail. So certain photography businesses benefit from certain homepage layouts or certain types of portfolios and image grids. Um, I, I can I give routinely give photographers 
recommendations about how to structure their galleries and sub-galleries, what platforms and tools they can use for what they need, how to sell their prints. Um, it's uh, a, a lot of nuances. And I, I just... I just say that it's not all about experience. Mm -hmm. I, I had to actively try to learn all of these stuff. Uh, I, I read guides about uh, interviews about what photo buyers want, what advertisers want from a, from a website. Uh, I'm subscribed to a lot of photography podcasts where I try to listen to interviews from people in the industry. So you, you get an idea over time of different, differences in, in photography websites in particular. Yeah, that makes sense. So okay, that was a beautiful list. I was, I was hoping you would be that specific so that people who are, you know, outside your world can start to understand all the, the complexity, which I imagine, I, how, how difficult are, is this for you now compared to, a, you know, five years ago? Has, has that expertise made the job easier for you? Uh, definitely. Um, now it's, it's a lot easier. So uh, because I've seen uh, hundreds and thousands of photography websites, I kind of know what can be done technically. I know all the tools and, and the niche. So um, photographers come to me with kind of a vague idea or just a vision for their website. It's, it's, it's easier, a lot easier for me now just to, to tell them, okay, you can do this and that. And I show them examples from other photographers. You can use these tools. And sometimes they're amazed because I bring their vision into some concrete examples, into context. And they just say, like, I'm reading their minds. But for me, it's just, it's now just an educated guess. It's nothing magical. It's, yeah. Right. Interesting. I do you ever have prospective clients who are looking at multiple uh, options for having a website, and so they're looking at you, and then maybe they're looking at other developers. Does that ever happen? And do you have do you feel like you have an advantage in those situations? Um, it it does happen sometimes when when they're open about it, and I see in their emails that um, they they mentioned that they've emailed other ones and they're mm -hmm. considering hiring someone. Right. But uh, that happens very rarely now, now since I've tweaked and tweaked my website a lot uh, in the recent years. So mm -hmm. uh, they, they self-select now, basically. They now come, come to me already almost convinced that they want to work with me. We just need to figure out the details. And this is... This is great, and only specialization allowed me to reach this state, I think. Yeah, that exactly describes what it's like when I get on the phone with someone who may want to hire me. It's, it feels like they're asking, any questions they are asking are about the, these little specifics that maybe I have not mentioned in my marketing or in my sales copy on my website but and, it, and you learn from those questions and you plug in any exactly. holes in your website. Yeah. Exactly, right. But it's never questions about my credibility or whether this stuff actually works or not. It's always these very specific detailed questions like, like how many times are we going to meet? Or, you know, it's, it's more about like, I call it the specs of the thing I'm selling. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, you've decided you want this car. You're just um, curious you know, how many horsepower the engine has, but you really have already made up your mind. You're just asking that question so uh, that you, exactly. you fully understand what you're getting into. So can you help the people who are listening to this sort of understand what it's like to have that kind of sales call? I, I imagine, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, the, the sales calls you had were different. They were maybe more difficult for you to, you had to answer a lot more questions. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, a lot more questions, and some of them were just uh, immediate red flags, as I see them now, mm -hmm. like uh, one-sentence emails, uh, what's the cost for a new website, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, I've just, well, I've learned from people in the industry, like <laughs> like you, and... Um, 
I don't know, Jonathan Stark and Kai Davis and Nick D and uh, all other podcasts and newsletters. So I've implemented a lot of stuff about um, what to put on my website, uh, all the info there and testimonials and details about my services and mentioning prices and when they want to work with me, uh, I know how to schedule a call with them. So I have all those why conversations with them. Right. And then, yeah, I have the the form, kind of the project starter form, uh, a set of questions. So I learn more about their business and um, yeah, a lot of steps in place. So it's all, it's all simpler now. It's kind of like a, a marketing engine that runs a lot smoother. That's great. So what are the, the, since you mentioned it, the marketing stuff, what are the activities that you do that you, you think have the biggest effect on bringing good clients to you? Or maybe there's not just a few things. Maybe it's really a combination of many things. But what uh, what has the big, biggest impact on bringing clients to you? Yeah, it, it is a combination of things. Um, when I when I started out in, in my f- first few years, uh, the biggest impact was doing some sort of outreach. And um, I did some guest podcasting in, in the industry on photography podcasts. And that brought in a good amount of clients that way. And some guest um, blogging for big sites in the industry, mm-hmm. um, digital photography schools and a few other ones. And um, that was a good strategy uh, in the beginning. And then I decided at one point quite early to focus a lot on content marketing. So I grew my newsletter and uh, a lot of articles on my site over the years. Uh, and now that's kind of the, that's the biggest uh, source now. They find me through SEO and um, I get them on my newsletter. And that's, I'm sure you've heard this from many people in multiple industries, how email marketing is so powerful. So, Yeah, I'm a big believer myself. I, I, for the folks at home, I want to point out the pattern behind what Alex just said because it, it's a common one. It's not the only way, but it, it's such a, a reliable way to do things. So rather than at first, instead of spending any time um, putting content on your own site, you're trying to get in front of existing audiences. So you heard Alex talk about podcast guesting. You heard Alex talk about guest posting written content on websites that already have an audience. And that is so smart because you, you skip the audience building step and you just get your ideas, your content, and sometimes just your personality and your voice in front of people who are prospective clients. And that's, I think, so uh, appropriate for an early stage in a business. And then as you mature, you can, and you, you sort of build momentum, you can start to invest in putting content on your own site, on your own platform, whatever that is. And that's, I think, one of the better ways to do it. If you just start, if you do it in the reverse order, it can be very frustrating. I don't know if you tried it in the reverse order, Alex, but it can be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And uh, I, I'd add that maybe another option would have been um, to buy traffic to do Facebook ads and th- something like that. Mm-hmm. I never liked that approach. It comes down to personality, like you said. Um, I just wanted to grow it organically over time to build kind of the foundation. All, all this content has helped me so much uh, until now. It's not just to bring in uh, new new leads. It's also... When I work with with existing clients, I can point them to parts of my articles. Or um, it's yeah. So it it's not just about uh, uh, content marketing. It's 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 useful even now. And I can I started now to turn all that content into products and other services. So it's it's it feeds into my business somehow indirectly. Right. 
Yeah, it sounds like it helps you cultivate good clients by educating them. And instead of having to do that individually for each client, each question, you now have a, a sort of library of resources you can point them to. Yeah, and that, that, that is part of a bigger picture, which is kind of trying to develop um, a product ladder, a service ladder. So uh, I know when photographers come to me and maybe they can't afford a full uh web design service for me, a full website from scratch. I'm, I'm relaxed at that point um, because I can point them to, to smaller offerings of mine. I can point them to a smaller web design service if we just improve their existing website. Or I can point them to a product, productized service or to a consulting call or to free resources. And even if they're free, they, it keeps them in the loop. They might become clients over time. And it's most importantly, it's just the kinder thing to do. So it, it helps me in that way. Right. Yeah. I think you can't overstate the importance of, um, you said, you know, a kinder thing to do, but, and I don't disagree. It's, it's, that's just so important. Like you really do have your client's best interest at heart. It sounds like. Yeah. I think that comes from, um, being, being a bit of a photographer myself. So I, I empathize with their struggles. So that's kind of stuck on me. And that's why I, I, I nurtured that patience to just handhold them when they don't have the experience. Um, maybe that that's, a sign of weakness because I, I can't push my business too far. I'm not that salesy, but it's just, it's, it's a lifestyle business. I'm comfortable doing it this way. And yeah, it fits me better. That's great. So what role does strategy compared to execution play in what you do? Um, do you, do you ever just do strategy only for clients or is there usually some combination of strategy and then implementation or execution? Um, most of the times it's, it's both they're tied together. So I, I do them both. Uh, I start out with, with clients, we discuss strategy together and then I do the implementation as well. So I can't differentiate the two. I can't separate them to say which of them is more effective and leads to results or something like that. It's, right. uh, they're tied together. The only strategy only services is doing a consulting call with them and they can take that advice and to a, to a different developer, a cheaper developer. Um, but that's, that's a fixed, it's, it's an hourly consulting call. So I don't know what they do with that afterwards. There's no, ROI for me to track. Right. Uh, or same thing with, uh, with the website teardown service. I just review their website from top to bottom. They get the advice or a recording of me, but um, then it, it leaves my jurisdiction unless they want to keep working with me to implement that. So, right. um, but most of the times they, they go together. Yeah. That makes sense. So, uh, last question I want to ask you, and then I know you have some questions for me. Um, I'm assuming that there are times when you speak with a client and your expertise is so far beyond what they have experience with that you'll say something that will surprise them or, or cause them to change their thinking about things. So if that happens, what does that look like when that happens? Uh, do you mean when when they get surprised by um, by prices or by the strategy that I by more, to... more the strategy is what I'm uh, curious about. Well, um, sometimes that that's hard. Um, it's true because um, they they come with preconceived notions. They just want a developer to implement their thoughts sometimes mm -hmm. and. They're, um, they're reluctant to hire uh, experts in other industries and let the, the expert give them advice sometimes. But uh, they, they want to be hired as photographers from other industries. So it's, it's kind of a mind, mindset problem there, I think. Um, 
but if if I do my job well and if I communicate well and I explain and I show examples, that's how I can convince them that this is a better option. It's 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 a game of compromises sometimes. It takes a while with some photographers. Others are more open to changes. Um, I guess... Um, everything I put on my website and all the marketing and articles, uh, those lead to trust, right? So trust then leads to openness, mm -hmm. them letting themselves more free to, to trust the, the expert um, to make the changes. I guess that, that helps over time. They right. come to me. And I know that from that uh, set of questions I asked at the beginning of um, all the projects. And one of the questions is, uh, how did you hear about my site? Why, what made you come to me specifically? And the most frequent note there is that they noticed I work exclusively with photographers. So they instinctively trust that. Um, and then they, they, they're more open to hearing what I have to say, I think. Yeah. Right. Why do you think they, that builds trust? The fact that you exclusively work with photographers. Can you speculate a bit about that? Uh, I'd say it's an instinctive idea that I've learned to see the nuances that we talked mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just, it's normal to think of that way of someone having worked only in that field. Um, we do it all the time when we see a specialist in another industry. Um, yeah, I think it's that simple. It's Makes instinctive. Sense. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, Alex, you had some questions for me about um, positioning and specialization. So let's turn the focus there and see if we can make any progress there. Great. Um, one of my questions, uh, it's kind of related to value-based pricing when it comes down to positioning. Um, and value-based pricing, I'm sure your audience knows, depends a lot on, on the ROI, on the results, what you can provide to your clients. Uh, but as I've explained earlier, I, I can't always measure that uh, with, with the types of projects that I do. The only way I can think of that I can affect that ROI positively is by offering more services to my clients. By After I do the website, by doing uh, email marketing, by doing outreach for them as well, by doing ads or advanced SEO. So I feel sometimes that I basically need to become more of a full service partner for them um, in this specific vertical. So in the vertical, I need to go taller <laughs> with my services. So uh, basically having a hybrid vertical plus horizontal approach is, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's harder to do. It's not realistic sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's harder to, to command value-based prices that way, right? Yeah, um, you know, value-based pricing is can be so tricky because on the one hand you can never assign the value the client has to do that and if your clients are not sophisticated or if they haven't got enough experience to even begin to estimate the value of of the work that you're going to do for them then they are going to have trouble assigning a value that they can uh, sort of buy into. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, when you're in this process, uh, you're trying to do what um, uh, this guy whose name I'm blanking out on calls building a vision, which is, and you know, you're participating in it, but you're not really doing it. You're doing, you're not doing it for your client. You're doing it with them. And building the vision is helping them see what life would be like with this thing that they're about maybe about to pay you to do for them. Mm -hmm. And less sophisticated clients have trouble building a vision because they just, they just don't know what's possible and what's easy and what's difficult. And they just don't know. 
So that's one of the things that can make it harder to do value pricing is if the client is not very sophisticated. That kind of matches with uh, the types of clients that I have. Sometimes they're not mature businesses or they're not uh, big enough businesses. So maybe that's why they can't tie any services, my services or other services, to specific results. So value-based pricing is just harder to do in that scenario. I, I would imagine if you worked for client A and then they uh, were referred you to referred some friend of theirs to you and so this friend of theirs is is going to become client B and furthermore if client A got a really impressive return on investment from your services then i believe client B might be a candidate for even though they they may be unsophisticated uh they they might be a candidate for value pricing because you can build that vision with them for Oh, and you can kind of frame it in terms that they understand, which are their friend's business. So there might yeah. be exceptions where the client's sophistication is – or the lack of sophistication in your client is not such a big problem. But generally, that's going to be a problem for value pricing. The other is what you mentioned. If you can't control enough of enough of the levers that contribute to – the outcome you're trying to create, that also interferes with your ability to do value pricing. So it's it's exactly one of the reasons why oftentimes um, the, the sort of path of growth is either towards some, some sort of full service offering where you, basically you are taking away your client's ability to to screw things up <laughs> by doing exactly. more of it for them. And yeah, but that's also harder to do. It is because um, you're one person. And so to credibly say I'm an expert at the website and also, you know, maybe you, you would add to that things like paid advertising or pay-per-click marketing or Facebook advertising. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you probably do some SEO, I'm guessing, just because that's sort of integral. Yeah. yeah. But over time, you stretch yourself too thin. You become a jack of all trades. It's harder to be a, to maintain good quality for all those services over time by being a solo. Yeah. If you're a solo person, that's exactly right. And so what I would say is, um, you, there, these, these things interfere with the ability of a business like yours to do value pricing. I still think you can charge a premium rate because of the specialization and all the social proof and all of that. But what you have to do is, I think, compensate by finding other high-profit sources of revenue, which it seems to me like you're doing with you know the you know, information products and the training that you offer. I don't know if you yeah, do training yeah. per se, but you, you mentioned some other products that are um, – that... well, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's good that you've said that as a kind of a potential solution. It's kind of been on my mind as the path forward. Um, I charge – I try to charge higher rates. I'm above industry average, of course, with my prices because yes. I, I, I'm not trying to compete with people on Upwork to do things cheaper than them. I'm – you know – you you pay more, but you get what you pay for. Yes. But um, there's a limit there. There's a ceiling to that income. And to push beyond that, besides buying traffic, is, um, well, productized services, there's a limit to that as well. And then products are the next frontier for me, right? So courses right. and things that sell by themselves. I think that's how someone who has this sort of, um, you know, every business has constraints. So it's it's not a bad thing that your business has constraints. And I think that's how you sort of expand the profitability is you look for things that are just very, very profitable that are um, uh, based on your current expertise and better, attractive. Better leverages. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're also yeah. attractive to the people you who would be clients um, so I think the path you're on is, is the right path. I, I do not think you're missing some obvious opportunity to do value pricing. Uh, there might be cases where you can, 
But in general, I think the the constraints of your business are going to make it difficult. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, what you touched on a bit earlier kind of leads perfectly to another question I had, which was uh, kind of the difference between services and products uh, as it relates to specializing, because um, I know specializing is fantastic for services, right? Clients come to me convinced that they want to work with me and with with productized services that also works well i need to do less of a marketing effort and it's it sells directly but when i want to transition more into products um that's when i feel i want the number of people i reach out to to be larger i want to cover a wider net so that feels to me unspecializing a bit it's a bit counterintuitive right because with services I care a lot about the type of client that comes to me. I filter them through all the red flags and everything because I need to interact with them later. Right. But with products, it's, uh, it's meant to be an automated machine. The products sell while I'm sleeping. So maybe positioning doesn't have to be that narrow. So um, when, I, when I write my, the sales pages for my products and everything I put out on my newsletter and everything for products, I feel I need to go wider with positioning. I, I don't need to be as specific. I need to be more general. It's, it's a bit counterintuitive for me. So um, maybe my experience has been that, uh, I mean, there, there are other books on positioning other than my two books, but I, I think that they become not a no-brainer because there are more than 10 million uh, software developers, and trust me, I've not sold that many copies of the positioning manual. So it's not, you know, not every software developer has bought uh, one of my books, but I think that it, it's, it's, it builds trust that the books are specialized for software developers, even though the concepts apply to uh, designers and copywriters and marketers. So here's what I would think about this differently over time. So I would encourage anybody who wants to uh, create some kind of, let's call it a digital product, since we're not talking about, you know, you designing, uh, you know, T-shirts or a watch or it's not a Kickstarter project. It's not like that kind of physical product. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyway. Um, so in the early stages, I think you would go very narrow, just like you do with your services. And then over time, as you start to have customers buy those products, you would look at expanding the, the focus. And that may at first only be a change in the marketing, only a change in how you talk about it or that sort of thing to to me, that makes it easier to be, get started. And, you know, products are not easy to do. There's a million ways to fail with products. Most of them are just our own, what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance, yeah. um, which is this kind of, you know, thing that happens as soon as you try to do something where you could get criticized for it, you start coming up with all these reasons not to do it. <laughs> yeah, the, the fear of success, the fear of failure, all the in, internal monologues, yeah. Those are two of thousands of reasons we, we give mm -hmm. ourselves. Oh, the name's not good enough. Oh, I, I don't know, who am I to be, you know, teaching people what to do? All these reasons will come out of the woodwork <laughs> as soon as you try to do something. Mm -hmm. So if, it's, if the sort of um, surface area of the project is smaller, I think it, it makes the resistance less of a problem. So that's why I advocate starting narrow with products and then over time, yes, expand. But try to make it as easy on yourself as, as possible at first. Making it specific for a one type of customer, like let's say that you wanted to produce some sort of informational guide that you're going to sell. Maybe it's a course, maybe it's a book. And yeah. it's going to teach... Um, a certain type of photographer how to do their own website based on what you've learned. I would go as specific as this is for wedding photographers or this is for uh, landscape photographers or this is, you know, there's what a half dozen or so genres within professional photography, right? Yeah. I would go that specific. 
Okay. Uh, now, feel free to disregard that, this advice, but this is, I think, what's helped me not fail terribly over and over again with, with the few products that I've created. It, it sounds right, and uh, I love your point about the internal uh, internal resistance. Mm-hmm. That's that's something you you don't read about. You just read about business details and all of that. Right. But I agree with so going specific with your marketing for products. That's basically increasing conver- conversion rates for your marketing instead of just putting more people at the top of the funnel. Um, right. Yeah. It, it just, I think it makes better use of a, of a small audience and audience building is not easy. So I think it's just easier to, to sell to something. Use the amount of traffic that you already have. Right. And yeah. Right. Yeah. It makes yep. sense. Good. Um, if, if I have two more minutes of your time, just one small ethical question I have for you. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's related to value-based pricing again and productized services. And okay. this is just um, the core of value-based pricing, as I've read a lot about it, is that a bottle of soda is worth more to someone thirsty in the desert than someone else. You, you, it, it provides different, a service can provide a, a, a huge difference in value to two different clients. But... Productized services, by definition, have a fixed price usually. They have the advantage that they require kind of a smaller marketing effort. I get that. It's an advantage. Clients self-select and they buy directly. But it feels to me you're selling the same bottle of soda to the same price to everyone. So it it kind of goes against the core value-based pricing initially and it it seems hypocritical to me to offer both. And I, I've seen uh, um, service providers who do that. They try to charge value-based pricing with some services, but then they have fixed price productized services for some. And I'm doing that as well. Uh-huh. It just sounds wrong. Mm. It's, it's the foundation. Don't they contradict each other by, by definition? You might be able to convince yourself of that if they were the same service, I think where you see that work well is some sort of, hey, we'll do a, an audit of your site and tell you what could be improved. That sort of thing being sold as a fixed price, fixed scope service, otherwise known as a productized service. Mm-hmm. And then something else that would be custom that would be value priced. I, that combination to me is not contradictory. For example, let's say that um, let me let me think about. I'm trying to come up with an but example that's in the, in the world of photography. Go ahead while I'm thinking. That 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 productized service, that uh, website audit, that's that's smaller. I get that, but sure. it still can provide. Uh, more value to a, a bigger uh, stock agency than for a beginner wedding photographer. You're absolutely but right. I, I, I charge the same price for them. Yeah. Well, that's a, that may be why um, you know our mutual acquaintance Nick DeSabado has moved away from fixed pricing for his even for his productized service services. Like he still does. Um, I think according to one of his latest newsletters that I read, uh, you know, he still does draft rev- revise, which was a productized service that he started a long time ago. It's still, it's still there, but I think the pricing is different based on the client. Blair ends, uh, calls it pricing the client rather than the project. And that's something, you know, that Blair's talked about a lot in different, uh, places. So, you know, Nick, I think is now, I'm not sp- speaking on his behalf, but I think this is what I remember from reading some of his recent newsletters is he's now, you know, he's now pricing the client and that's what you're talking about. So the big stock agency, the website audit has significantly more value for them because they have a bigger volume of revenue and, you know, multiple reasons than it does for that beginning wedding photographer. So that's a case where you have to make a choice and the choice kind of looks like, do I want to leave money, a little money on the table or maybe a lot of money on the table 
in exchange for having an easier sales process, a more standardized sales process. or It's a game of compromises. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it really is. So that's a case where I think you're right. There is this inherent um, contradiction, and you have to pick one or the other. Otherwise, it, it just doesn't make sense. And I think that choice, and it kind of fits with the, the Nick's example that you gave, is the price, the cost of that of those productized services. If they're small enough, uh, just a, a couple, a few couple hundreds of dollars, it, it's it, it's not worth the effort to value price them. It's easier to just offer them as a fixed price. But once you have uh, more expensive productized services, a thousand dollars or more, I guess, which I think Nick does, then. Uh, I think it's worth it more to do, like you said. Yeah, training is an example of a productized service where because the delivery of the service is usually scalable in ways that consulting or software development are not scalable, you can just say, you know what, I'm going to pick a price that's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a premium price or maybe it's middle of the road, but that's the price, and we're just going to sell as much of this as we can because we can deliver an almost, not an actually an infinite amount, but we can deliver a high volume of this thing. So we're going to, we know we're going to leave, be leaving money on the table because let's think about sales training. You know, sales training for me does not have nearly the upside that maybe the sales same sales training for a hundred person consulting company would have. Like for mm -hmm. that hundred person consulting company, that could help them produce millions in additional revenue. Yeah. It's not going to do the same thing for me. So you could price it differently for that, you know, hundred person consulting company, but you, you might just say, you know what, we don't care. We just want to, we want to fill up our program and we want to sell, you know, a thousand seats of this training every year. And that's our goal. And to do that, we're just, we're going to um, create some efficiencies by not having to negotiate price individually for each person that takes it. Yeah, so it becomes a numbers game yeah. then. Yeah, uh, then it's a, it's a volume business at that point. Exactly, and it's just opposed by in principle to the concept of value-based pricing, but like, like you said, they can both live for the same service provider. Sure. They stand side by side depending on the cost and I guess the service details. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, so... I think that one of the big points here is that value-based pricing is wonderful, but there are other valid ways to run a profitable business. Like I'm not for or against value-based pricing, but it doesn't work in every situation. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. What other questions could we tackle, Alex? Uh, that's it for me. I covered uh, all my questions. This has been uh, provided me with clarity, so... Thanks so much. Well, thanks to you for sharing your story. How can the folks at home, if they wanted to see what you're up to or ask you questions or find out more, where would you send them? Uh, all the info is on my website, uh, foregroundweb.com. That's F-O-R-E, groundweb.com. Um, that's where I have everything. Um, they can get in touch with me and see my articles, newsletter, everything. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks again, Alex. Happy to be here. Thanks.